from Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 21. We'll read that scripture quickly, and then we'll go on. Now, uh, I told Pastor, I've got about three ropes here tonight that I could follow, or three rivers, however you want to say it, that I could follow. I've really got some loose ends I need to tie up from some different weeks. And so I may, we may take three different subjects and kind of braid them into a rope or something. Anyway, I've got some loose ends I need to tie up, and so we're going to be doing that some of that tonight. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 21. It says, That your days may be multiplied, and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. And so I love this scripture. I don't know about y'all. But I believe that God wants us to have days of heaven upon the earth. You know, we got baptized in the Holy Ghost in January 1, 1980. And you know, up until that time, did not we were I was saved. I've been saved since I was ten years old, and I knew I was saved. I mean, I never doubted my salvation. I got good and saved when I was ten years old, and uh, Pastor was saved, and uh, we were farming in West Texas, and my grandmother was filled with the Holy Spirit, and through a series of events on January first, uh, she had some friends come over, and uh, and uh, we were. Uh, <laughs> compelled by their life and by their testimony to be filled with the Spirit ourselves. And the thing that impacted our lives so much when we got filled with the Spirit was John 10.10. You know, we didn't know. I don't know about other Christians, but I know these Christians. We didn't know that we were supposed to have life and have it more abundantly. And we got excited when we got baptized in the Holy Ghost and we saw that we got to have abundant life. Now, we were farming, and we were, like he had told you before, I think the first year he farmed, he went $50,000 in debt. And he said, we should have just laid on the beach all year We wouldn't and charged it on the credit card. It wouldn't have cost that much. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we did better after that. And by the time we got to the end of 10 years of farming, we were doing well and uh, had a good, I mean, we had a good living from farming. We don't ever want to make it, put it in that light. We just had a, first, a, rough, a, rough, a rough year to start with. And... Um, and so anyway, though, the, the whole thing was the whole excitement in my heart. And, uh, and I tell you, I, we were excited. We hit the ground running in 1980, and we had never let up since. Uh, uh, what, but the whole thing that really stirred us was this abundant life thing. It's the, it is the whole thing of my heart. It's what my whole ministry goals are, are, is that to not only live the abundant life, but to help other people live the abundant life. I am stirred up that we are to have days of heaven on earth, that we are to have abundant life, and I hate anything that keeps us from living the abundant life. Amen? And sometimes, you know, I go before God. Sometimes if I'm believing for healing or something and I say, now, God, you've got to do something here because I can't have abundant life. I can't have days of heaven on earth with this going on. This is just not going to, it won't be a day of heaven. And I can, I have a right, a covenant right to believe that every day I live is a day of heaven. I don't, I'm not believing that someday I'm going to get a day of heaven. That if I just keep doing right and believing I'm going to get a day of heaven. No, today is a day of heaven on earth. God, you got to make some adjustments in heaven. If it, if it takes that, whatever it takes, you've got to make some adjustments. So as I have a right to a day of heaven on earth. 
Amen? I've been redeemed into that. Well, we, we've been redeemed to have a covenant marriages and days of heaven in our marriages. God never uh, did want uh, any of His children or anybody for that matter. God's so good, He tries to bless the sinner. Amen? And uh, uh, his, He wants all of us to have good marriages. And there are sinners that have good marriages. Amen? But the majority... Really, the majority of all people don't have really good marriages. And even in Christian circles, the marriage marriages aren't generally good. Now, I'm believing that we are a cut above in this church. I don't know why, but I just believe that. And uh, <clears throat> we've been studying that a godly marriage or a godly home, that a home that has days of heaven on the earth has got to have two parts. One is a submitted wife and two is a husband that loves as Christ loved the church. So those are the two parts. And, you know, in order to have days of heaven on the earth, both the husband and the wife are going to have to be cooperating with God. You're not going to have days of heaven on the earth when one of the parties is not cooperating with God. God, when both parties cooperate with God, God can prosper that home and He can take that home to new levels of spirituality, to new levels of prosperity, and He will be continually doing that. You, If you are cooperating with God, the husband and wife, I guarantee you you'll prosper. I guarantee you next year you'll be blessed more than you are this year. I guarantee you He'll take you from faith to faith and from glory to glory. He won't leave you like you are. But that's what it takes is both parties cooperate. Both the husband and wife are submitted to and committed to the Word of God. If both the husband and wife are not submitted to the Word and, and, and committed to the Word of God, uh, then it's not going to work like it's supposed to work, is it? So both of them have to commit to the Word of God and submit to the Word. Both the husband and wife, in order to have days of heaven on earth, have to be people of prayer. They have to both be praying, not just the wife praying. Now, men are notorious for depending on the wife to do the praying. Now, I mean, you know, now I've been on the women too, so we'll get on the men. But that's one of the weaknesses there is they try to depend on the wives. You know, women tend to seem more spiritual. That's because women are more spiritual. <laughs> well, I don't mean to say more spiritual, but women are more sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They're also more easily led off. Bob Yandian said the reason more pe women are more sensitive to the Spirit is that women are two steps away from dirt and men are just one step away from dirt. God took dirt and made Adam. Men are just one step away from dirt. But women are two steps away. You know, we didn't come from dirt. We came from your rib. Amen. That's where we came from. And so they tend to be more sensitive to... And so they tend to seem to be more spiritual. And I say that seem to be. In reality, uh, men are not less spiritual. They just react to spiritual things differently than women do. Amen? And so because of that, because of, of the way the wife reacts to things spiritually, a lot of times the man can feel intimidated by that and back off. And, uh, you know, maybe leave the praying to her. And that's the less, less, last thing that he should do. I tell you what, uh, every home needs a praying husband. 
And if my, I, tell, I told my husband early in our marriage this very thing. I said, the thing that gives me the most peace and the thing that makes me uh, settle down and be peaceful is when I know you're praying. You know, everything in my house doesn't have to be exactly right as long as I know my husband's praying. If I know he's praying, it gives me confidence, it gives me peace, it, it, it bolsters my faith, it makes me, I, I'm encouraged. I know it'll work out if I know my husband's praying. So husbands, you know, if you want your wife to settle down and be at peace and not be stressed, well then be a man of prayer because it will give her peace to know. So, you know, and, and you know, she, you, sometimes men pray and they don't let their families know they pray. Your family, your wife and your children need to know you pray. They need to see you pray sometimes, but they also need to know. You know, it's a good thing to say, honey, I'm going out to the woods back here. I'm going to go spend some time praying. I guarantee you, it'll, it'll encourage her. It'll help her. She'll, she'll feel confidence if she knows that you're talking with God. Amen? And so uh, that's a very important part of marriage. Uh, but both the husband and the wife should be people of prayer. Uh, they need to have committed themselves to finding and doing the will of God. It's not enough just to find the will of God, but to do in the will of God. I can't have a, a marriage that's heaven on earth until I find the will of God and then be committed to doing the will of God. And then uh, also both the husband and wife need to be in unity about serving God and about living for God. If I'm going to have days of heaven on earth, we need to be in unity about this going to church thing. We need to be in unity about this tithing thing. We need to be in unity about serving God. And that's what's going to bring days of heaven on the earth. Uh, wives were created to submit and respond. Wives are responders. That's why it's important for you to lead. Men are created to act in love and to lead. It's so important for you to lead so that she can respond. Respond. Amen. And things are out of order when she has to leave. Okay. Now I want us to talk for a little while about handling conflict. And I told you I'm picking up some ropes from some past weeks that things we didn't get to, but that I had in my notes in weeks prior to this. Handling conflict in the godly marriage. You know, wives are are designed to submit and respond. Husbands are designed to act in love and lead. But how many of you know that uh, that doesn't always happen? In any marriage, that doesn't always happen. The most godliest man on earth that's the most submitted to God, at some point he's not going to act in love, and at some point he's not going to lead. Or if he does, he may not lead in a, in a loving way. And at some point, every wife doesn't submit and at some point, every wife does not respond uh, correctly. Amen? So how do we handle a conflict when they happen, which it's invariably going to happen in every marriage at some point. If, if, if you don't have a conflict every once in a while, somebody's brain dead or something, you know. I mean, something's just not happening here. But um, anyway, or somebody's a doormat, or somebody's suppressing everything. And you know, I don't know about you, but I think there should be two contributors in marriage. Instead of just, uh, instead of someone, I don't, I, you know, just, I don't believe in, in that God ever intended wives to be whatever you say, just whatever you say, and be mad as fire on the inside. You know, I don't believe that's how God intended for us to be. And so we have to handle conflict in our marriages. Now, to, we need, uh, there should be peace in the marriage and, and there should be peace in the home and that should be our goal. If we don't set these things as goals, how will we ever have them? 
If we don't set it as a goal, Father, I want peace in this home. I want peace in this marriage. So we set that as a goal before us. Now, uh, Jerry Savelle was uh, telling Pastor Brooks, I believe it was, and he told us anyway, I thought this was very good, that he said his home was so filled with peace. And one of the things he attributed his home to be so filled with peace is that he said, I surround myself with stuff that blesses me and stuff that is lovely, with lovely things that bless me. You know, there's a lot to be said for that. You know, uh, that is a lot to be done to cause peace in a home is is for the home to be uh, a place of blessing, a place of beauty, a place of, um, uh, of, uh, of it, it should be orderly. And because and cause if you have a chaotic home as far as how it's arranged and, and where your the stuff is, how will you ever have peace there if it's chaotic in its arrangement? In other words, if there's trash and there's stuff piled up, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, chaos. The toys, there's toys everywhere. You can't walk through the house. There's dirty clothes here and there's laundry on here. And I'm not saying, you know, we all fold our laundry and we all fold it. You know, most everybody folds their laundry on the couch. I don't know why that is. <laughs> and so we're not talking about, you know, having laundry on, we're, but we're talking about a continual state of chaos. And if there is a continual state of chaos, there's going to be a lack of peace in the home and there's going to be a lack of peace in the marriage. Amen? Yeah. And, um, and so I thought that was really good what he said that the way he brings peace in his home is one of the ways is uh, that he surrounds himself with things he loves and things that are lovely. And you know, so husbands, don't ever get aggravated at your wife when she wants to decorate. Because she's wanting, she's doing what comes naturally to her in God. She's, she is, she is wanting to bring, make beauty. She's wanting to be, make a place of peace. She's wanting to make a place that honors you. The Bible says that, that the husband, uh, because of the way the wife conducts the home, that he is known among the elders of the city. That's what it says. And so, you know, sometimes husbands want to get aggravated that she wants to decorate. You know, most men are be content to live in a tent. I mean, as you know, as long as there was a remote and a refrigerator, <laughs> you know, it, but you know, you need to give her a, you need to give her license there. You need to give her freedom to bring beauty into the home because it'll bring peace into your home. Okay. Okay. Um, we need to have a desire to avoid strife. You need to have that desire. The first step to getting rid of strife is to have a desire to avoid it. Amen? And you need to learn to eradicate strife quickly. Now, strife is going to try to come. It does in every home. But you need to learn to get rid of it quickly. Don't let strife hang around. Turn to James chapter 3, verse 16. See, we shouldn't entertain strife or let it stay in our house any prolonged length of time. I believe that's why uh, the Lord said, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. He could have just as easily said, don't let the sun go down on your strife. Uh, you know what I mean? Don't let the sun go down. I know uh, uh, Roy told me he had found a way around that. He said, <laughs> he said, if the sun's already down when you get in strife, that doesn't... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, you've got you've got like 12 hours or 24 or something. You got till the next day. No. But I really think that what the Lord meant was, you know, don't go to bed with strife in your heart. For one thing, it's going to give you indigestion, you know, and, and ulcers. Really, really, truly. And uh, you know, it's better to work it out, isn't it? It's better to work it out. And you know what? There shouldn't be any reason why two Christians can't work it out. There shouldn't be any reason if two people are both truly submitted to God, then it should be easy to work it out. If two people are really wanting to please God and not wanting to please self, shouldn't this be easy to work out? James chapter 3 verse 16 tells us why we should want to uh, avoid strife. It says, let me see, James 3.16. Nah, I'm not in three. Okay, that helps when you get in the right. It says, um, For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. See, so we don't want to let strife stay. I mean, if strife does accidentally creep in, sometimes we want to eradicate it quickly because where strife is, there's going to be an opportunity for other evil works. Well, what are some evil works? Well, uh, sickness, amen, poverty, you know, lack, an opportunity for Satan to come in and steal, kill, and destroy. Amen? You just wonder how many times that has not been the opportunity where, where, uh, destruction, for destruction to come into a home. And so we want to eradicate strife quickly. Second Timothy... In chapter 4, chapter 4, I notice it says a, a little, it uses the same phrase there, talking about every evil work. Where there's strife, there's every evil work. Look at this in 2 Timothy 4.18. It says, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto His heavenly kingdom. So if strife is the beginning or is a part of an evil work, God has a way of delivering us from these evil works of strife. Amen? Now, strife is a spirit. I don't know that so much by why, that I found it in the Bible, but I proved it out by experience. You know, I have noticed that there are times when my husband and I can just be lovey, lovey, kissy, kissy, huggy, huggy. Man, we're having a good time that day. And all of a sudden, just... You know, have y'all ever done that? It's like, I don't understand this. There is really no reason for strife here. We have been having a happy day and all of a sudden, you know, strife is a spirit. The devil tries to send strife and inject it into situations. And we, how we react to it depends on how fast we get rid of that and deal with it. I don't believe that we can keep strife from trying to come. I believe it's always going to try to come, but I believe that we can don't have to let it in uh, to our marriage. Another thing we need to do as far as handling conflict in the godly marriage is to learn better communication skills, improve our communication skills. You know, um, there was one. I heard this psychologist say this, and I thought this was really interesting. He said, you know, when we're dating that we'll, we, we're just like, oh, you know. And he said, you're virtually blind when you're falling in love. And, you know, we've heard that before. Love is blind. Well, and, you know, when you're falling in love, it's like they can't do anything wrong. And, you know, you'll hear somebody that's falling in love, and they'll say, oh, we are just so right for each other. We finish each other's sentences. But they can turn right around the same couple and get married, and that man will say, stop interrupting me. 
And before he married her, he thought it was so sweet that she was finishing. She thought just like him. She was finishing his sentences for him. And see, it's just our perspective. And we need to keep that, that romance perspective. Amen? And there's things that we can do to cultivate the romantic side and the romantic perspective of marriage. And you have to work at that. But you can keep that going. Amen? And one of the ways you keep that going is by, um, by being playful with each other like you were when you were dating. You know, everything doesn't have to be so serious. Sometimes when we get married, then we let all the problems, all the, well, look how much money. And look how much, you know, and, and the refrigerator went out. And the plumbing's broke. And, you know, and, and what about your job? And we let these problems weigh us down. And we forget to be have fun in our marriage and to be playful still. You know, every married couple should have little endearing terms that only they use with each other. You know, little ways to say I love you that only that only uh, they use with each other. I know a long time ago, now we don't do this as much anymore, but when we were first married, you know, we would just like hold up three fingers and that meant I love you. You know, that's really, you know, we would, oh, <laughs> y'all can take this and use it later if you need to. Three fingers. I love, you know, if we just wanted to communicate that. And you know, now something that we do that's playful is, uh, I'll share with y'all, is uh, we'll say, I'll say, I love you, or he'll say, I love you, and we'll say, and he'll say, or I'll say, I love you more than you love me. And he'll, and we'll go, no, 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 there's no way you could love me more than I. And we'll have this little, and, and you know, we'll get into like, you're not even capable of loving me as much as I love you. You know, we'll get in this little banner of who loves each other more. But see, those kind of things, even though they seem silly, you know, and they are kind of silly, but those kind of things keep life in our marriage and keep that romance and keep that, that dating aspect that the things that we had when we were dating, it keeps those things in our marriage and that's thing that keeps it alive amen and a lot of times couples just like well you know I told her I loved her once and I don't if I don't change my mind I, I won't you know well those kind of marriages aren't going to have much life um you know, if you've got an issue to confront or talk about, now there's always things that we have that we do need to confront or we do need to talk about, but I want to just suggest something to you that most of us don't do, and we're Christians. But you know, before we confront or talk about issues, what we ought to do is pray. But most of us just jump in with both feet, don't we? And then we think, my Lord, I don't know why he's reacting like this. But see, God knows your husband. God knows your wife. And you know, he could give you some tips if you'd consult him on ways to deal with things or ways to approach things or a time to ask him. You know, there's a time to ask a husband something and there's a time not to ask him. And a smart wife figures out when the time's right. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Praise God. So uh, that's a good thing to do. You need to ask God to give you understanding of your mate. You know, your mate, when there's a conflict, sometimes really neither one is wrong. You know, Brother Hagin says when he teaches the Word on healing, he says, you know, there's more than one way to go up the mountain. And when you look at healing from this direction, you know, you'll see one aspect. When you look at it up on this side of the mountain, you'll see another. Well, in marriage where conflict is concerned, 
That's how it is. You know, your husband or your wife may be looking at one side of the mountain and it looks this way to her. And the husband's looking at this side of the mountain and he's going, "What? how in the world could that woman believe that? How in that world could that woman see that this way? That is, you know, and really, if you, if, if, if you would take the time to get the wisdom of God, you know, a lot of, on a lot of situations, there's more than one way to see it. Amen? But a lot of times, we just have conflict because we're just seeing it our way. That's a good reason why we come to church. You know, all of us would already be walking in complete abundant life if we were seeing it right. If we were getting the whole picture. That's why we come. We get our minds renewed. And a lot of times, what Pastor and I give you is just a way to see something differently than you've been seeing it. You know, we don't see our faults very well. Nobody does. But when you come to church, the Bible says we get washed by the water of the Word. You know, we get, we get cleansed of seeing things wrong, of wrong attitudes. And so it's a good thing to do. Um, sometimes we try to get our way with a battering ram. That's not a good idea to try to get your way with a battering ram. My grandmother used to say you can attract more flies with honey than you can with vinegar. Y'all ever heard that? You know, there's a way in God to get the same results without World War III. Amen? You know, I, 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 this same psychologist that I heard, let me read something he said to y'all, because I thought this was very enlightening. He said, in the times I worked with couples, the most common goal of each patient was not to find out how to live and behave productively, but to convince me that what they were believing or doing was correct. Seldom did either partner in the marriage come to me and sincerely say, Doctor, I want our marriage to work no matter who is right. What both of them usually said in effect was, I want you to recognize that I'm right and convince my spouse that I'm right so that we can do things my way. See, if we've got that attitude, we need to get to that place where we say, God, no, I don't care who's right. I want this thing to work. Amen? You know, there's things your wife thinks. I mean, she truly believes. They may be completely wrong. You will never change her mind. They're only God. There are things that are so strong in her, belief systems that are so strong in her, that you will never change her mind. Only God will. Did you know there are things in every husband, belief systems that are so strong, and some of them are wrong, but only God will change their mind. And you know, we're going to be leading a frustrating life if we're trying to change something only God can change. Amen? And so we got to leave the things that God can only change to God. Amen? Instead of having a continual world war over and over and over. I don't know about y'all, but I, I could nearly take a show of hands and believe. But Pastor and I have noticed in nearly 28 years of marriage that we, if we are going to have strife, we have it about the same old things over and over and have for 28 years. I mean, nothing's changed in 28 years. I mean, as far as what, what sets us off. It's not something new setting me off. It's the same stuff that set me off, and there's not something new setting him off. Isn't that amazing? 
Isn't that amazing? Hallelujah. Amen. So we are quit. We're not. We just don't. We're leaving those things behind. Amen. Okay. Um, so we eradicate the strife, and we repair the gap in the marriage, no matter who is right. The first step towards this is to recognize one thing, that God is the only one who is truly right. Both the husband and the wife need to recognize that God is the only one who is truly right. There is never just one at fault. Now, there are people that think that, they, that they're always right. But I want to tell you, that that is an egotistical, prideful way to think. And you'll, you can think that way if you want to, but you will never have heaven on earth in your home and in your marriage. You'll never have the full prosperity that comes from soul prosperity until you finally get to the place where you admit that I'm not perfect. And I'm not saying you have to get up and announce it over the Tuscaloosa radio station or anything like that. But I'm talking about getting that kind of attitude before God where you're humble, where you realize, I make mistakes. I miss it. Amen? So God's only one truly light. You know, sometimes in an argument, you know, I can be wrong. I can be 100% wrong. But you know, what, what I need and what he needs is we need to both realize that I may be 100% wrong today, but yesterday it was probably him that was 100% wrong. In other words, what I'm saying is, is you may can prove that she is wrong. You may can get the encyclopedia out and prove whatever y'all are arguing about, she is wrong. Or the dictionary, no, you do not spell this word this way. And you may can prove it, but we need to have the attitude of I can miss it too because I probably did yesterday. Or if I didn't yesterday, I will tomorrow. See, in other words, it's an attitude of humility. It's actually an attitude where we don't lord it over each other. And you know, wives can be where they think they're always right. Sometimes husbands can be where they think they're always right. All of us need to get the Christ-like attitude is, I know I'm not always right. I know I miss it. And so therefore, I have mercy on you because I know I miss it too. Amen? So that's the way that we're going to eliminate conflict. Uh, we need to come to this discussion of who should apologize. Now, I know everybody wants to know that. Uh, I'll just tell you this. You need to be the first to start the negotiations. And you do that based upon your desire to please God and your healthy respect for the dangers of strife. If you feel that you are at fault, you need to apologize. But if you feel you are not at fault, you need to apologize. The person who repents is not necessarily the person in error. The person who repents is just following the Word. The person who repents is wanting to repair the gap and has a desire to bring peace. You know what? I don't know about you, but you've probably, if you've been married any length of time, you've already discovered this. There's no use in waiting on each other. To wait is to prolong the will of God. The minute you perceive something is not right, the minute you recognize that this is not according to the Word of God, that's when we ought to... Re the minute I take one step in God's direction, I step into the outpouring of His power. 
The minute I take a step in the direction of God, I step into the anointing. And the power of God will then bridge the gap and bring that home back together. And that should be our goal. Not to be right, but to bring the home back together at all costs. Amen? To shut the door to the enemy. I'm going to get rid of this strife because I want the door shut to the enemy. So, honey, I am sorry. Amen? Praise God. Now, when we apologize, you know, we can't do it with the attitude, well, she didn't even apologize back. Amen? Amen. I'm talking about mature Christians growing up. Amen? The only way to stop the grief that words cause is with words. You cannot stop grief that was caused by words any other way but by words. Sometimes, instead of apologizing, we want to go out and buy a flower or something. You can't stop the grief caused by words by buying flowers. Now, I'm not advocating we don't buy flowers. Let's buy them too. Amen. But you can't stop. You can't stop the grief of words by cooking his favorite meal, ladies. You can't even stop the grief that words cause by in the bedroom. You can't, you can't stop the grief that words caused by uh, a hug and a kiss. You have to stop the grief of words with words. Amen? That's the only thing that will take it away and cleanse it totally. I mean, we can cook his favorite meal and we may smooth the surface over, but it'll still be down underneath there if we don't deal with situations words. Now, fam family, this is true not just in marriage. This is true in other situations too. Amen? Sometimes we want to do wrong and then we want to counteract it by trying to do right or do better. Amen? And the only way to deal with a conflict that's already happened is to take right words and eradicate the words that the, the bad words. Amen? With repentance, with apologies, and so forth. Okay. Um, what to do, now we're going to switch gears just a little bit and go into a little higher level or deeper level, however you want to see it. What to do with an unbelieving mate or a mate who is acting in an ungodly manner or the mate who is not going to serve God. So now we're talking about, you know, before we were talking about a godly marriage, but how to deal with little situations that come up concerning strife. But what about greater problems? People that have greater problems and they actually have an unbelieving mate or they have an un, a mate that's doing very ungodly things, or a mate who is, uh, it's become apparent that they're never going to serve God. And you're in this marriage uh, with, a, with a man or a woman who is never going to serve God. Let me tell you for one thing for sure before we get started on this, is God never intends for you to stay married to someone that you can't be in covenant with. Amen? And so... Um, that is very important. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. I want to show you how God would have you deal with the situation. 1 Peter chapter 5. There's a way to deal with the abuse of drugs and alcoholism and, and all the different things that sometimes crop up in marriages. And I want to show you in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 6. It says, um, 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Real important verse right there, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Now, after you've become a Christian, you've submitted yourself to God, you've humbled yourself under the mighty hand of God, the Bible says He wants to exalt you. He wants to bless you. He wants to honor you. He doesn't want you living in hell on earth. And you know, you're not the exception to John 10.10. Your friend is not the exception to days of heaven on the earth. You're not the only one in the body of Christ that doesn't get that because you have this man or this woman who has this sin problem and they're not going to serve God. God says there's a way. And here's the way He says to deal with it. He says, cast all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. And so instead of you trying to figure out what to do and what to say to them and how to convince them, and you know, what you do is you cast your care upon the Lord. And this is very important when we tie this verse to Isaiah 10 verse 27. Isaiah 10 27 says, The anointing destroys the yoke and removes the burden or the care. The anointing destroys the yoke and removes the burden or the care. Now let me demonstrate this to you and I'll use Leanne. Leanne, if you'd stand up and we will use your Bible. And we're going to demonstrate how this works, okay? Now we're going to both say that Leanne is uh, the ungodly mate. <laughs> and she has a sin problem, and this is the sin. This is your sin. Hold on to it. This is your burden, your sin problem, okay? Whatever it might be. And we're going to say that I'm the Holy Ghost, okay? Now, when you, as the believing mate, cast your care upon the Lord, God is obligated by, to, to do what He said He would do, and that is care for you, take care of you. In Isaiah, it says that the anointing on your life destroys the yoke and removes the burden. This is the yoke. This is the burden. This is her sin. Now, what happens is when you cast your care over on the Lord, then the Holy Ghost begins to try to get Leanne to let go of this sin, to let go of this burden. The Holy Ghost tries to get her to let go of this. Amen? But if she won't, and he's been, the Holy Ghost has been dealing with her. Let go of this burden. Let go of this sin. Because the mate, her mate, has cast the care of it over on God. So what God does, the anointing destroys the yoke. You just keep hanging on like you didn't want to let go of your sin. The anointing destroys the yoke and removes this burden. She's fixing to be gone. If she, <laughs> if she don't deal with her sin after God will give her a time. And he'll try to take it away, but he's going to destroy that yoke one way or another and remove that burden when you cast your care over on the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Okay, I thought that was a good demonstration. Um, so the thing we need to do when we have an unbelieving situation like this is increase the anointing on our life. Pray in tongues. Become vocal about God. Stop hiding our religion. Too many Christians are hiding their religion in their home. Hiding their religion in their home. We need to stop hiding our relationship with God. Become vocal about God. Stop compromising. 
You can't, you're not going, God's not going to remove that burden if you're facilitating it. In other words, if you go to the bar with them, he's not going to be able to remove the burden, is he? I mean, you know what I'm talking about there. Quit trying to talk them into it. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.24, the servant of the Lord must not strive. Amen. Now, uh, let's, uh, does he, well, let's, let's move on. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I hope everybody got that. And we'll finish up one more loose end that we had. Got a little time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, um, and we're not going to read all this because we read it all last week, and just for the sake of time. But if, if, from verse 1... To verse, through verse 13, we covered completely last week, and I would encourage you to get the tape if you need more information on this. But I'm going to sum up what it says in chapter one, in chapter 7 from 1 to 13. It says to avoid fornication. It said that husbands and wives are to render to each other due benevolence. We know this is talking about the intimate relationship. In verse 10 and 11, it says that um, for the believing mate not to depart... Let me read that to you. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. And so what he's saying there is there's another way to handle it besides you just getting mad, stomping your foot, and walking out. And we just demonstrated to you how you cast your care over on the Lord and let the anointing of God destroy that yoke and remove that burden. Of course, verse 11 gives you permission to evacuate the place if you are in a place where it is not safe. Amen. Okay, then in uh, another thing that it says in these verses is if the unbelieving mate departs from you, let them depart. Now, I think that we need to uh, explain unbelieving here because a lot of times people say, well, you know, oh, yeah, my husband, he's a believer. Uh, yeah, he believes in God. He believes in Jesus. But your husband or wife is not a believer. They may believe there is a God. They may believe there is somebody that created the earth. They may even believe there's somebody that went to the cross and died for their sins, but they're not a believer if they, do, if they are acting in ungodly, immoral, unhealthy, or unsafe ways. They can be saying they believe if they want to, but they don't really believe. Are they, you, can't, you can't do those things if you really believe. Amen. You, you, you aren't a, you, they can say they believe in Jesus all they want to, but they don't have any fear of God or believe. They don't, if they're beating you up and things like that, there's no fear of God there. There's no believing there. Amen. So if they're acting in those ways, they really haven't believed in that level. First John chapter 2, verse 4, we might just read that so you clear that up for you, just to show you that I'm speaking not on my own, but by the Scripture. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4 says, and I realize tonight is kind of a seminary, but hallelujah, we're getting things we need to know. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Amen. He that saith, I know God, and doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So just because they have said 
uh, yeah, I believe that there is a God that went to a cross. If you don't believe enough to obey Him, you don't believe enough to go to heaven, family. <laughs> you may have a passive belief based on you grew up and y'all always celebrated Easter and you know somebody died on the cross. That you may have some sort of passive belief like that, but if you don't have enough belief to, to obey Him, and I'm not saying never miss it or anything, but I'm talking about a fear of God, then you don't have enough belief to even get to heaven. Okay? Uh, so uh, it also there, that First John, is talking about people that practice sin habitually. Of people that sin freely without remorse. Have remorse but return at their first opportunity. You know, some people, oh, I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again. The next night they're drinking and beating. You know? I, that's just old, what is that? It's just their flesh crying and whining. It's really, you know what it really is? It's just manipulation to get back in the door and back in your house. That's all it is. They're just manipulating. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. Well, you prove it out there living somewhere else for about a year, buddy. Amen. And then we'll see. You know, I tell you, uh, God is not putting people into bondage to unholy, ungodly situations and ungodly and unholy covenants. Amen. So uh, uh, the, uh, when the unbelieving mate departs from you, let them depart. The, and, then in, and then it say, goes on down there to says, uh, and says, uh, in verse 12, But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And it goes on to say, uh, If the woman have a husband, and he be pleased to dwell with her. And we studied last week that that's the whole key phrase there, is, is he pleased to dwell there? He can, if he, you know, he may not have responded to the the altar call yet. He may not be the deacon in the church you want him to be. But is he pleased to dwell there? Is he conducting himself in a way that treats you like he's glad to be around? Amen. And you just sum that up. Or is she treating, is she conducting herself that way? Now, I want to look at verse 14, which we did not touch at all last week, and finish up this little loose end. It says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. Now this scripture has thrown a lot of women off course because they thought if they stayed in an old uh, bad, bad marriage where there was bad things happening, that somehow they were going to cause their husband to be saved. But that is not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is that if you did marry an unbeliever back when you didn't know any better. Maybe you didn't know what the word says about not being unequally yoked with anyone who is not a believer. Or perhaps you married and y'all were both unbelievers and one mate got saved. That happens a lot. Well, uh, you know, the question comes up when you have that situation where you have one is a sinner and one is a Christian. What about my children? And you say, well, I don't understand the question. Well, you've got to understand from the Bible perspective because these people are thinking according to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, which says that he visits the, God visits the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And so, so the question was coming up in Paul's day, I'm, I'm a believer, my husband's not, or I'm a believer, my wife's not. What about my kids? 
because we know in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, it says that to those that love God, He blesses them to a thousand generations. So the question comes up, if I'm an unbeliever or if my husband's an unbeliever, where do my kids fall? Are they getting iniquity to the third and fourth generation or are they getting blessing to the thousand generation? And he answered that question right here. And he said, the unbelieving mate is sanctified in that by the believing mate and your children are holy. They fall under covenant. Your children come under covenant. This was a covenant question. This was not a salvation question. It was a covenant question. Where, uh, you know, where is the, God, how are you going to treat the children? Well, I'm going to treat them like they are in covenant. That's what he, Paul answered that question. Amen? Uh, so verse 15, you can see that real clearly if you look in the Amplified Bible because he talks about uh, the, uh, he talks about the unbelieving spouse is unblessed, heathen, outside of covenant. That's why, family, it is so important not to marry an unbeliever because they are unblessed, heathen, outside of covenant. See, sometimes we just think, oh, they hadn't received Jesus yet. No, they're unblessed. They're heathen. They're outside of covenant. And then we marry them and we wonder why we have hell on earth. Amen. We wonder why they act like the devil. And the Bible, Jesus said to the, the Pharisees, He said, you are of your father, the devil. He told them, your father is the devil. They are birthed of the seed of Adam after the fall, and they are, their father is the devil. And until they see the light and receive Jesus Christ and are made a new creation, there's nothing they can do but act like the devil. Amen. Amen. And oh, and then we, and you know, we, we don't teach this enough in our churches. And then we have little girls go out and marry boys, or, and boys marry girls that are outside of covenant. Amen. Amen. You won't have heaven on earth. Uh, in that situation. Now, I'm not saying there has been many times when God has turned situations like that around. And thank God He did. But just because He turned it around once does not mean that He'll be able to again. Really, it's totally up to the person. Amen. Amen. Turn, look in verse 15. Um. It says, but if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. The Bible says there, if an unbelieving mate depart, let him depart. And here's what it means. Don't seek to be reunited. Listen, if the anointing destroys the yoke and removes the burden, and they're not letting go of their sin, they're not changing, we don't need to be trying to get back together with that old hound dog. Do we? Don't be like the pig that returns to the vomit. The mire? It's the dog that goes back to the vomit. (laughs) Okay. I knew something went to the vomit. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Uh, You know, 
just to, well, we're, we're winding down here, but just to clarify here a little bit, you know, we get mixed up about this no condemnation thing. I, you know, we preach no condemnation in this church. But sometimes I get the feeling out there that people think that we mean uh, uh, that God's laughing at sin or something, you know. And, and you know, I, nothing could be further than the truth. You know, and just because... And, you know, even sometimes we like get to feeling like, well, you know, I have to put up with people jerking me around because I don't want to condemn them. Listen, no condemnation doesn't mean I put up with bull. I, just because I don't condemn you don't mean I have to put up with you. Amen? <laughs> and so you're not condemning your mate necessarily uh, just because you don't put up with the things. No condemnation means this. I understand that God no longer deals with His new covenant people by punishment and reward. That's what no condemnation means. I'm going to repeat it. I understand that God no longer deals with new covenant people by punishment and reward. He does not look down, see you sin, and punish you somehow. He also does not look down, see you do good, and reward you for that doing good. He rewards faith. Amen? And people get mixed up about this. It also means that I know that God deals with the new covenant man by His Word and by the Holy Spirit. I also know that when I do mess up, this is what no condemnation means. There is a way by confession of sin to be completely washed clean. I do not have to pay or live under guilt. Amen? Amen? God. That's what no condemnation means. No condemnation doesn't mean that I let you get by with a bunch of junk and say, oh, well, there's no condemnation. It also doesn't mean that God laughs at sin. You know, sometimes pastor will say God's not mad at the serial killer. And he's not mad at the serial killer. But I want to tell you something, he ain't happy with him either. Amen. We forget sometimes to explain to people he's not happy about serial killers. If somebody will pray, he can't stop the serial killer unless you pray. If somebody will pray, you know, we, 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 we can stop anything if we'll pray. We have been given the dominion. We've been given the authority. And when the serial killer doesn't get stopped, it's because nobody's praying. Or they're praying dumb prayers like, Oh, God, do something. And he's saying, Speak it. Do something. You speak it. You know? Amen? Hallelujah. We can, we can find... Somebody needs to pray that they find that bomber guy. Maybe it's me that's supposed to do that. <laughs> that's hit out in North Carolina. I'm tired of him being hit out. I want him exposed. Amen. 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 Praise God. Hallelujah. Verse 16. For we're, we're winding down. Promise. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband, or how knowest thou, how, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? See, people have used that to say, now you gotta, you got to stay in this ungodly, unholy marriage because you, who knows? You, you may save your husband. What he's saying is here is you don't know. You don't know. He says there, For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy son? You can't know. You know what? Only God knows if your husband or your wife is going to choose or any person is going to choose. Amen? We can pray, but we don't. there's no way. We, you can't stay in abusive, 
ungodly situation, risking your life, hoping someday God's going to change them. Amen. You cannot do that, okay? Um, and verse 17, Paul said, he said, and this is so important because he said, but as God hath directed, distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk. And what he's saying there is, you know what? That even husbands who have left their wives, uh, whose wives have left them, even wives whose husbands have left them, he said, I, he said God, God still calls them. And I ordain them. Amen. And so he, he gives us clarity on that little subject. <clears throat> Verse 27, Art thou bound unto a wife, seek not to be loosed. Art thou loose from a wife, seek not a wife. But and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. Verse 27, he says, Don't spend your time seeking a husband or a wife. No single person should spend their life seeking a husband or a wife. Amen. They need to focus on God. Amen. They need to focus totally and completely on the Lord, give themselves over to the Lord. If God brings a husband, uh, you don't have to go out hunting for him. And people that go out hunting husbands, you're going to have to go some ungodly places trying to find one. Then you're going to get an ungodly man and you're going, God, why did you give me this man? Well, he didn't give him to you. You found him in a bar. Amen. Amen. And if you go hunting a husband in a bar, you're going to get, you're going to get a joker. Amen. You're going to get something you don't want. Amen? Amen? And I tell you, it's not even safe to go hunting one in a church these days. Amen. I tell you what, you God has to do those things. Amen? And we need to leave it to Him. Amen. Hallelujah. Verse 28 uh, says... Uh, uh, if you marry, you've not sinned. If a virgin marries, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. The Amplified said, those who marry will have physical and earthly troubles. <laughs> That's real encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> but, <laughs> but what he's saying there is that there's things to overcome in every marriage. You know, we just don't need to be deceived when we're going into marriage. Hallelujah. Amen. If you read those little books... Uh, I think I heard one person call them bodice busters or something, you know. Y'all know, <laughs> know y'all are looking at me strange, but <laughs> all you have to do is look at one cover and you'll know what I'm talking about. But anyway, if you read those little romance novels, that man does not exist. <laughs> he does not exist. Fabian or whatever his name is. <laughs> I saw him on TV and I thought, who would want that thing? <laughs> I'm like, oh. But anyway, that romantic guy, that man, and I never read one of those, thank you, Jesus, but I just know that man does not exist. Amen? He don't exist. If you marry, you will have trouble in the flesh. You're going to get a human being, is what he's saying. You're not going to get some God, some God, goddess or God. Amen? Praise God. Stand up. You may have got more education than you wanted tonight. <laughs>